Good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and make your way to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 5 here in a moment. Uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to be focusing on the spiritual discipline of prayer, this incredible opportunity we have to come into the presence of God and not just talk with Him, but to hear from Him. A.W. Tozer once wrote that a few minutes of earnest prayer will often give more light than hours of reading the commentaries. I think Tozer was on to something because when we look through the Gospels, we see that Jesus taught on prayer, he modeled prayer, and it was the only thing that his disciples ever asked him to ask them him to teach them in being uh, what a prayer life looks like. And this morning again, we're going to be Matthew six, beginning in verse five. We're continuing our ongoing series of "Tell Me the Story of Jesus." And if you weren't here last week, we began by looking at uh, the giving to the needy. And the reason Jesus focuses on three spiritual disciplines in giving to the needy and praying and fasting is because these were the highest religious virtues in the Jewish life. The issue was, is you look in chapter 5 when Jesus actually explains what the law of the Lord meant, is that the people of God were not being taught the law correctly and they were not being taught these spiritual disciplines correctly. And so Jesus deals with that and what not to do and what to do and what it looks like in our life. Returning back to Tozer... And the reason prayer is so important is he writes that the early church also took great delight in prayer. They had prayer meetings almost every day. They gathered together for prayer. Today, the contemporary church gathers for dinner. The early church was fasting and praying, which may show the difference before us today. And today, through God's Word, we're going to see three principles of prayer that Jesus teaches on we're going to be in verses 5 through 8, and we're also going to be able to walk away with four applications that we can do to expand and, and grow our prayer life. Well, Jesus begins in verse 5, speaking on prayer, and says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, <clears throat> for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So we're going to spend this morning just on these verses. Next week we'll come back and we'll be walking through the Lord's Prayer. Jesus begins His teaching on prayer with the negative. Uh, is tied to verse 1 of chapter 6 where he tells us to beware or to be careful not to practice our righteousness before other people. And just as Jesus did with giving to the needy in verses 2 through 4, when it comes to pray, he says, when you pray. So your understanding of giving to the needy is God's people, we are to be a giving people. And now Jesus says, when you pray, he actually says it three times. He says it there in verse 5, verse 6, and again in verse 7. It means as believers, we are to be prayers. Again, Jesus uses the term hypocrites as he did with giving to the needy, which means to play a part, to be an actor, or to appear to be something that you are not. And the three examples Jesus uses is standing in the public, in the streets, in the synagogues, and praying, and then going into your room and he heaping up empty phrases. They teach us three principles we need to gather about prayer, and the first one we can find in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. 
The first principle of prayer is there is a position of prayer or the position of prayer. Jesus says the hypocrites love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. And it's interesting how Jesus says that they love to stand. So obviously they're praying because they want other people's attention. And they do it in these situations because that's where the Jews and the Gentiles would be gathered. So they're doing it for a show. Imagine when many of us were younger, we were taught different ways to pray. Most times when you tell people to pray, the first thing that happens, if you want a crowd to be quiet, that's the first thing you say. Hey, let's pray. And everyone just quiet. But when we were young, we're probably taught when you pray, what do you do? You close your eyes. You bow your head. Maybe you're taught that you put your hands together or you clasp them. I can remember a lesson on prayer when I was in Sunday school as a a young boy, about five or six years old, and our teacher was an older woman. Of course, as a kid, most adults are older, and you perceive them as older. Her name was Mary, and she kind of wore her hair up. It was gray, and she had these big, thick glasses and always wore her Sunday dress, and she was my Sunday school teacher. And one day in Sunday school, she had the, remember, if you remember Sunday school, remember those big packets that the quarterly stuff would come in, and they had pictures and books and all sorts of things. And so she had the folder, and she pulled out the picture for the day's lesson, and she said, what are the people in this picture? And there was typically a painted picture, and there was four different paintings. What are these people doing? Well, the first picture was of a family gathered around a dinner table holding hands with their heads bowed, and maybe we thought, well, okay, I think they're praying because that's what we do at home. The second picture was a man sitting in a pew, and if you don't know what a pew is, it's basically a bench with really bad padding, and sitting in a pew with his head bowed and his hands clasped, and again, I thought, well, he looks like he's praying. The third picture was of a woman in what appeared to be her living room, and she was on her knees, head bowed, hands clasped, and again, I thought, okay, looks like praying. The fourth picture is what threw me off. The fourth picture was of a man in a field with his hands out and his eyes up and his head up. And so I thought, well, it can't be praying then. Kind of like the old Sesame Street where one of these is not like the other. I thought maybe that was the game we were doing. Well, I said, I think they're praying, but that one guy, I don't know what he's doing because you don't pray with your hands out and your eyes up and your head up. I was always taught you bow your head, you close your eyes, you maybe clasp your hands. And this is the valuable lesson I learned that day as a five- or six-year-old, and I don't know if anybody else got it. But she looked at me and she said, you know, when you pray, you don't have to close your eyes. When you pray, there's not actually a specified position to which you're to get in in prayer. You can pray seated, you can pray on your knees. Most times in Scripture, we find people falling to their knees or laying prostrate, which means they're fully on the ground, their chest, their stomach, their legs, their face, just fully on the ground before God. She says that when she prayed, she does pray with her eyes closed because it helps her stay focused on who she's talking to and who she's talking with and having that time of communion. And as she began teaching me about that, she taught us about different positions, about the knees and the prostrate and sitting and standing. You know, when we look in the Bible, we find, again, most people fall to their knees. And the reason a lot of times we close our eyes or we ask people to close their eyes in prayers is because we can become very distracted. We can start looking around. And who here would confess that when there was a time of invitation at a conference at a church and the pastor asked somebody to raise their hand, you just kind of that little glimpse? 
When we do the same thing with prayers, we can start looking around and seeing if people are actually praying, and we're not actually focusing on who we're supposed to be talking to. Jesus, at times, did fall to his knees in prayer. And falling to our knees is a physical representation that we're submitting to God. And we are aware that God is greater than we are. But notice Jesus never says, when you pray, close your eyes and bow your head. We know that when he was with the disciples in the garden, the very end of his ministry, he told them to stay in certain spots to pray, and they, in fact, closed their eyes. You remember what happened with them? They fell asleep. And so maybe sometimes it's best if we keep our eyes open in prayer if we're laying down. But our position in prayer, whether it's on our knees or with our head bowed or with our heads to the heavens, is to give our mind and our heart the understanding of who we are being allowed to commune to and commune with. So I'm not going to tell you that you have to close your eyes to pray. I'm not going to tell you you have to on your knees to pray. I'm not going to tell you that there's a certain position you have to pray on. But I do believe there's time for those actions. Our position in prayer is to remind us that we aren't praying or joining in prayer for anyone else. Prayer is not a show. It's time to have a divine interaction with the God who loves us and saves us. The second principle of prayer can be found in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is telling us there is a place of prayer. Just as our position reminds us who we're praying to, so, so does going to a particular place. And some people might read this verse and take it out of context, saying, well, isn't Jesus teaching in this moment that congregational prayers, how we started this morning, or mass gathering prayers is something we shouldn't be doing? But no, that's not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus right now is, is focused on personal religious duties or religious virtues. If you read through the Gospels, you can find that Jesus, in fact, prayed in public. He prayed with other people. He prayed with his disciples in the upper room. We see that Peter prayed over an entire family, that Paul would pray with his comrades in prison. When Jesus speaks of going to a room and shutting the door, in his day what it would have been is it would have been a storage room, kind of like our closets today, because that was the only room in the house that would actually have a door to close. The principle is this, we should have a place where we go to convene with God intimately and privately. There's a movie out called War Room, many of you have probably seen it. In that movie, an older woman takes on a younger lady and kind of disciples her and tells her she needs to have a prayer closet or a prayer room. And so she begins to develop that habit of having that place where she goes to be with God and she has her prayer board. Well, at the end of the movie, I guess the older lady passes or she moves away, I can't remember. But people are looking at the house and they come across what was her prayer closet. And just overwhelmed by the power of the Spirit that was coming out of that. It's a great illustration. I'm not saying when you finally find a place that is going to be super spiritually infused, but it will be a place where you can be intimate with God. You can be yourself. You can fall on your knees. You can say whatever's on your heart. Now, I have a couple places, and I don't say that to brag. I say that to maybe give you some ideas of where you could find a place. One place is obviously at our house. Um, typically in the mornings before the kids wake up, if I can get up before they do, ever since the COVID thing, my sleeping's been whacked. But anyway, I would go down, and I would sit at the dining room table, and I'd have my Bible, and I'd have my coffee, and I would be in prayer, and I'd be reading God's Word. Sometimes I would do it in the living room at the table 
where I have my Bible and my coffee and I'm, I'm in prayer and I'm talking with God and I'm reading God's Word and hearing what God is trying to say to me. But a lot of times, see, I have a weird sleeping pattern that frequently throughout the week I'll wake up about 1 or 3 a.m. and I'll be wide awake. <clears throat> and I would get up and go down to the table, but we have two little dogs that if I got up, then they would think they need to get up at that time and I don't want to mess with it. So I'll lay there in bed with my eyes open and I'll talk with God. I'll pray over my family, I'll pray over my wife, I'll pray over you all, I'll pray over this church, I'll pray over prayer concerns that have been brought to my attention. And usually what happens is I find myself like the disciples, I eventually get so peaceful I fall asleep. Another place I have for prayer is my office. I have an office in either the back or the front of the building, however you want to look at it. And in those times, I'll, I'll gather and I'll pray over what God wants to say, not what does Pastor Mike want to say, but what does God want to say to his people on Wednesdays and on Sundays. And at times, I'll be on my knees on my floor in the office. Other times, I'll be sitting at my desk. And I think if anybody else were in the building, they would think I had gone crazy because I, I literally talk to God audibly. I'll talk like he's sitting there on the couch and, and, and I can just hear him telling me and directing me and guiding me. One frequent place I pray is in the car. So I'm glad you don't have to close your eyes to pray because that would be dangerous. <laughs> but sometimes I'll listen to preachers preaching on the radio, but sometimes I'll just turn it off and I'll, I'll turn down the radio. And I'll just drive and I'll be talking to God and I'll be listening to God. And, and, and I've had these incredible times just in the car by myself driving and talking to God, typically when I'm running errands. The point is this. We have to develop a place for prayer. And it's not in front of the TV. It's not in front of the computer. It's not when your phone is, is lighting up. But a place where you can get alone with God. We have this incredible opportunity to get alone with God. Talk with him and hear from him. Third principle is found in 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. There's a procedure of prayer. Jesus says, don't heap up or offer up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. He's bringing the attention to his audience, who is Jews, that the Gentiles is representing individuals who are not God's people. They do not belong to God. It reminds me of a story in 1 Kings. If you have your Bibles there or you have your phone or whatever you own, go on to 1 Kings in chapter 18. Those empty phrases that heaping up at the Gentiles, those non-believers, those people who don't believe in God or aren't part of God's children. In 1 Kings 18, we have the prophet Elijah and King Ahab. Now, at this point in time in Israel's history, Israel has broken into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is known as Israel. The southern kingdom is known as Judah. King Ahab is the king of the north. And so during this time in chapter 18, there's a severe famine in the land. And God comes to the prophet Elijah and says, look, I need you to go and confront King Ahab about his wickedness and what he's doing. So Elijah goes to the king. And as soon as he comes into the king's presence, the king blames everything on Elijah, saying all this stuff is your fault. The reason we have a severe famine in the land, the reason people are having it so hard, it's your fault, Elijah. You're, you're, you're ruining us. You're ruining this nation and this kingdom. 
And this is when Elijah calls out the king and issues a challenge to the king. See, what happened is King Ahab was no longer following the Lord's commands. He's no longer sticking to the word of God. And he had begun worshiping a false god known as Baal. And so Elijah says, I'll tell you what. So you know that God is the one true God and why we're in the situation we're in. Why don't you summon your 450 prophets of Baal, the false god, come and meet me on Mount Carmel and we'll have this high noon duel. So we'll pick up in verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, meaning he's by himself. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull. So they did first pick. Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. I love this part. Saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. That's right. Right there. That's scripture. Maybe he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep. And he must be awakened. So what they do? Verse 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom and swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repeated the altar of the Lord. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar to the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and, out, and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So this thing is just like a pool now. And he's supposed to have a burnt offering here with this bull. And at the time of the offering oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, which is to remind him that he is the God of covenant. He is the God of promise and that they are to be his covenantal people. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and you have turned their heart and they have turned their hearts back. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And if you like blood and gore, you can go on and read in verse 40 what Elijah and the people end up doing to the 450 prophets of Baal, who probably had a weakened state because they were gushing blood. The false prophets, though, Jekesheth, they raved and they ranted. They danced around. They kept calling Nothing happened. This is the image that Jesus is speaking of when we come back to Matthew 6. Representing unbelievers, those who are not God's people and therefore do not serve the one true God. In Jesus' day, it would be speaking of the Romans. And the Romans served the Greek gods. So he says Gentiles, he's referring to those serving Greek gods. And for the Romans, there were 12 major gods known as the Olympians, but there were also 400 minor gods. And if you turn to Acts 17, you don't have to do it right now, but you can read it later, I find it another comical story. The Apostle Paul is walking through Athens, Greece, and he's noticing all these altars built to all these false gods and he comes across one that's inscripted the unknown God. And the reason it's comical is Paul eventually uses this to reference to Jesus. But the Athenians and the Greeks had all these altars, but they made one to the unknown God just in case, just in case we forgot one. And we don't want to make he or she upset. And so the Gentiles would lift up their prayers to the gods, the false gods, and if that God didn't answer, then they would go on to another God. And they would just keep going down the line until either they got exasperated or they would give up. And this is what raising up empty phrases and babbling on, hoping to get a false God's attention, hoping to find the magic word or the magic phrase that would bring that God into action. And just what Jesus says, don't do that. Don't pray in a way in which you question whether or not you have God's heart whether you have God's attention. Don't babble meaningless words which have no heart or thought behind them, hoping that it will make you sound religious. Don't pray in a way in which you hope you find that magic word or that magic phrase that might unlock the prayer that will finally grab God's attention and he'll answer. Jesus' teaching on prayers reminds us we serve the one true God, and he knows our every need. And we already have his attention. If you ever wonder whether or not you have God's attention, turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm reads, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even for a word is on my tongue. So even though, even before we could say the prayer, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. That means we're totally surrounded by God. And you lay your hand upon me. That's a sign of blessing. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Get this, verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. You think God's aware of you? You think we have God's attention? Especially as his children. He knows every one of our days, all of our thoughts, every word before it even comes out of our mouth. So when we come to God in prayer, we don't have to hope we can somehow get his attention like the prophets of Baal and shout and do all this commotion stuff. We come before God in prayer, whether it's on our knees, in a chair, standing up, eyes open, eyes closed. You've already got his attention. His eyes are on you. And so from these principles that Jesus gives us, I want to give us four things to apply to our prayer life. Since Psalm 139 says there's nothing hidden from God, now that may scare us at times that he knows everything about us, even our biggest shortcomings and failures. When it comes to prayer, here's the first thing. Be authentic. Be real. We don't need to hide our struggles. We don't need to hide our worries, our griefs. We don't need to hide our praises or our thoughts. We can be as real with God. And I would say we can be more real with God than anyone else. We can tell him the things that we're wrestling with. And so we don't have to use words with God that we never use anywhere else. Just talk with him. Be yourself. I wonder sometimes if we try to use words like, you know, justification and sanctification and propitiation and atonement in our prayers or righteousness. I wonder if God says, why are you talking to me that way? Who are you? Just be real with him. Second advice is pray the word of God. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, this is what God promises us. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. And what is the word? The word is the word of God. It is breathed out by God according to 2 Timothy. So shall the word, my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. In other words, we can never go wrong when we pray God's word. Because he will never go back on his word. Now, we may misinterpret it sometimes, but we can never go wrong praying his word. And so for some of us, that may mean we need to start memorizing more of God's words so we have more things to say to God when we come to him in prayer. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Meaning this, solid. And we can take Scripture in verses, and maybe sometimes we're going through difficult times, turn to the Psalms and see what the psalmist said. Feeling forsaken by God, feeling that God won't answer him. Repeat those words, because that's the Word of God as well. Third application, start a prayer journal. I used to do this in the back of my prayer time notebooks, and I still do at times, but now I 
tend to do it in my notes uh, application in my phone. And the reason I do that is because I typically have my phone on me all the time. And one thing about a prayer journal, here's a couple things it does. One is when we go to pray, maybe we don't know exactly what to pray, and we don't always want to pray selfish prayers. And so we have a prayer journal. Where we're able to go and look at prayer concerns that have come our, to our attention. Maybe that's through different apps, different conversations. Maybe that's through Facebook. And so we can look at those, and we've been praying about those things. But here's another thing it does that I love. That This is what my, my mama taught me. When your mama teaches you something about prayer, it's usually good. When you get a prayer journal and you see that God has answered a prayer, you can highlight it, you can make it bold if it's in your notes, you can put a star by it. So when you go to pray and you look at your prayer journal, you can see the way that God has been answering the prayers you've been lifting up to him. And so when you go to pray, you're actually going to go praise him first because you see he is in fact a good and great God. And he does listen to the prayers of his children. Here's the final application. Find people to pray with. I know we can get intimate with God, and Jesus says to go into a room by yourself, close the door, but find people you can pray with. Jesus is going to teach later in Matthew chapter 18, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Students, find other students that you can pray with before school starts. There's like one day a year we, we really make a focus with see you at the pole, and that's in September. But shouldn't we be doing this like every week? Adults, find people at work you can pray with to pray about your workplace, to pray about what's going on in your life, people that you can be real with and authentic with. And maybe it's going to be a slow process. Maybe it's just going to be beginning saying, you know, I'm really struggling with something right now. But what an incredible way we could start our work week or start our work day by gathering with other believers to pray about that place, about that class, about that test coming up, about that big job that's got to get finished. How much would it impact our day if we began with people in our places we gather throughout the week in prayer? How much would it change our perspective on things and change our attitudes towards people, maybe even our boss or other co-workers? This used to be something I did very well. As a church family, we did very well, and we need to start it again. Before COVID blessed us with germs, not that we didn't have germs before, we used to have monthly prayer meetings here at the church. It wasn't usually heavily attended, but it was always good to gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ, to read some scripture, and to pray together. Before COVID came, we had several men who would gather every Monday to pray, to begin time in prayer with one another, in prayer for the day, prayer for our families. I know many of us have people in our life we've all, we already get together with and we pray with. But men, I want to issue a challenge. Women, you can go somewhere for a moment, mentally, not physically. Men, I want to issue a challenge. I want to see us start gathering again to pray on Monday mornings. And put this in your calendar, March 7th. That's when we're going to start. We're going to meet at Common Grounds. I got the okay. We'll start at 6.15. We're going to aim to get done by 7 on a Monday morning. 
So you can get your kids to school or you can get off to work, but we're going to gather together to prayer. Church family, women, come back into the fold now. I want to see us to have an official day of prayer once a month. And I want to do it on the second Monday of every month to gather to pray. Why second? Because usually some Mondays and months, the first Monday is usually a holiday. So the second Monday of every month. And here's what I understand. I understand there's going to be times that you're not going to be able to make it. I understand because there's going to be times I'm not going to be able to make it. I have family obligations just like you have family obligations. There's some things that just take us from that. Here's what else is in your calendar. March 21st. I know that's not the second month of March, but here's what we're doing on the third Monday, or third Monday of March. Because the second Monday of March is spring break, and I have a feeling some of y'all are going to be gone. And so in March, we're going to start on the third, and then we'll go back to the second Monday. And I want us to do this every single month. Jesus' expectation is when you pray, when you pray, when you pray. So as God's people, we are to be praying people. We are to be gathered together. If you were to go back in history, I don't know how many history buffs we have here, but if you go back in history and you look at the great revivals in history, they all had one key element. It wasn't great preaching. It wasn't great Bible studies or great Sunday school classes. It wasn't great buildings. Can you guess what the one key element to every great awakening revival in history was? Prayer. Now, would you all agree that in our land today we need another revival? So let's become praying people. It could start here at Harvest Hill. It could start in Stratford. When God's people gather to pray and to lift up this land and this nation and this country and this government. There's one more element of prayer I want us to catch, and we're going to expand on this a little bit more next week. Jesus says, verse 9, pray then like this. And he begins with the phrase we're probably familiar with, our Father. Now, here's the point we understand with this phrase. When it comes to praying, the way Jesus teaches that you cannot be praying to God unless you're a child of God. You may be talking to something, but if you don't belong to God's family, you cannot start the way Jesus teaches us to pray and calling God your Father. Now, I call my dad, Dad. When I was younger, I called him Daddy because I belonged to him. I was a part of his family. There was only one other person in the world that could do that, and that was my brother. As God's people, we are the only people that can come before God and say, Daddy, Abba, Father. And I want to bring that up because if you're here this morning, if you've yet to accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life, that means you're not a child of God. And that means you cannot commune with the Father. But God wants to change that for your life today. That is his will for your life, that you would be saved. And that's the gospel message we preach. So if you're here this morning, hear this. God created you for a relationship with him, for you to be his child, and you'd be able to call him father. And it is your sin that is separating you from that relationship, from your purpose in life. And you may think if you can be a good person and you can do enough good stuff that that'll, help, that'll take care of the sin problem, but Jesus says, no, that won't do it. There's no one righteous, no, not one. But Jesus Christ came to die for your sins on the cross, which he did. They placed him in a tomb, and he rose three, day, three days later. And he did that to take the cost, the punishment, the wage of your sin. He rose from the grave to show that he has power over sin and death. 
And the Bible says when we believe in our heart that that is true, and that God loves us that much, and that Jesus died and rose for us so we can be forgiven and given eternal life, and we believe in our heart, the Bible says we must confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior with our mouth. It makes publicly known, and we will be given eternal life. We will be saved. So if you're here this morning, and you're not sure or you know for certain you have yet to accept Jesus Christ and yet to make it be known, I'm going to invite you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. But maybe you're here and, like me, because of COVID or whatever other reasons, we've kind of gotten out of the, I don't want to call it a habit, but the exercise of getting with God and being intimate with Him, being able to talk to Him. We've got a direct phone line to the throne room of heaven through prayer. So let's pray together. I'm going to invite Jackson and Nick. Somebody's going to come up and lead us in the song. But the point is, if you need to accept Jesus, I'm going to be down here. But let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for claiming us as your own. Thank you for telling us that nothing can separate us from you. Lord, thank you. You've given us this, this incredible tool talk with you and to hear from you. Father, let us as your people, as this church, be prayers, talking with you and relying upon you every moment of every day. I thank you for what you're doing here, what you're going to continue to do. Father, we pray in this moment that you be glorified in you alone. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.